So you would open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 18. Our text this morning is verses 18 through 23. We do believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the true authoritative word of the true and living God. Acts 18, beginning with verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with them Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking the But upon taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray. Almighty God, in the time that we have before us, I pray that you would be uh, our guide and our teacher. Lead us into all truth as we have opened your word and read it, and now as I seek to proclaim it. May Jesus Christ be honored, and may we come to trust in him even more. We pray in his name. Amen. As I was saying that we believe the word of God to be in an inerrant and inspired, uh, authoritative, the, the true word of the, the true and living God. I was really talking to myself as much as anybody uh, because this passage um, was really a difficult passage for me to, to get my hands on. And this passage almost made me want to become a topical preacher rather than an expository preacher because I wanted to to somehow bypass this passage. This passage left me scratching my head trying to figure out why the Holy Spirit included the details of this passage that we find here. And as I said, it would have been easier to skip this passage. And as you read the, the, the book of Acts, or as you read other uh, passages of Scripture, sometimes the Holy Spirit especially in Acts, will leave out several years of details. You'll have from one verse to the next, maybe a couple of of years will have passed by. But here in this passage, the Holy Spirit has included seemingly insignificant details that have little bearing on anything that would be helpful for strengthening our faith in Christ. But it's exactly at this point when we run across these these types of details that we should be spurred on to ask, why did the Holy Spirit place these particular details in the Holy Scriptures? Because these details, because God wanted them there, are for our benefit. The details I'm referring to specifically are in verse 18 and also in verse 20. In verse 18, the scripture reads, 
and I practiced this many times, and I'm still going to blow it. Sensory, sensory, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So Paul, after leaving Corinth, went to Sensrea, I guess would be the way I would pronounce it this time. I'll change it later, I'm sure. Um, He cut his hair, he was under a vow. And that's all it says about that, and then it moves on. And then in verse 20, the scripture reads, When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So our task this morning will be to examine these details and seek to benefit from them spiritually as God gives us help. So let's look at verse 18. Uh, As I said, Paul had taken a vow after leaving Corinth and he cut his hair, signifying that his vow had been completed. And this was not a a formal Nazarite vow, since Nazarite vows could not be taken outside the Holy Land. And if you're wondering what a Nazarite vow is, well, you're going to have to be patient. Paul takes a Nazarite vow in chapter 21. And so I'll explain what a Nazarite vow is then. Suffice it to say, this is not a Nazarite vow. Um... The vow he is taking here seems to be an informal and private vow. And Paul's cutting his hair signifies thanksgiving to God for giving him grace to be faithful in keeping his vow that he had made. What is the vow that he made? My best guess, and I found some commentators that agreed with this, is that Paul is giving thanks for his courageous faith while in Corinth. So if you look back, remember last week uh, as he was in Corinth, verses 9 and 10, remember how the Lord Jesus spoke to him in a vision in the middle of the night? And so if you look back up at chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Remember, I made a point of him talking about, I think he was afraid. He was tempted to be afraid. And so Jesus said, don't be afraid. Uh, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you uh, to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I think he made a vow to, uh, to be courageous in his faith, to speak up everywhere that he was given opportunity rather than being uh, afraid. And, and so I think he, he made this vow to help him remember to be courageous, but also to help him remember that Jesus had given him this promise. And so now he's cutting his hair, signifying that Jesus was indeed, indeed gracious to him and helped him to be courageous and speak the word of God fearlessly while in Corinth. The practice of taking a vow has been largely overlooked by Protestant Christians. When was the last time that you took a religious vow? Um, I think that the, the Protestant church, I think, in, has, has largely ignored... Um, the practice of making vows uh, because of a reaction to uh, an overemphasis in so-called vows of poverty and chastity and obedience that the Catholic Church has has come up with. Um, but it will probably surprise you to learn, however, that in our own uh, Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that there is an entire chapter devoted to the proper practice 
of taking an oath and a vow. Uh, In fact, I included most of that chapter on the front of the bulletin. I think I left off... Um, I left off the second part and the seventh part simply in the interest of time. Uh, But this is from our Confession of Faith, um, chapter 22. Uh, To further prove that vows are, are, are largely overlooked... Um, in our day and age by Protestant Christians. I brought a couple of commentaries on the Westminster Confession of Faith from my library. One, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Enjoying God Forever by Paul Smith. And the chapter 22 on vows, he just skips over and leaves out in a, in a commentary on the Westminster Confession. So uh, that was surprising to me. Don McLeod, I love Don McLeod. He is a tremendous theologian. So this a Faith to Live By also is a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. He skips that chapter as well. So um, it seems to... There seem to be saying that, well, this chapter on vows is not that important. In fact, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, the great Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia, decried the practice of keeping vows completely. He said, Christians are not to make vows to God. Sometimes the devil tempts us along this line, but it is only a shrewd attempt to get us back on the ground of law where we can be dealt a heavy blow. It may further surprise you to realize that uh, you have kept vows, that you have made uh, vows here in the church. In fact, last week we had a little service of vow-keeping or vow-making. We had the WIC officer stand up in front of the church and I asked them these questions. uh, And they gave their assent to those vows. Uh, we asked new members to give their assent to the five membership vows. And we expect our members to be faithful to those vows as they are giving those vows, not only to the congregation, but to God as well. And so we do make it a practice of making vows. Um, but you might be asking, doesn't the Lord Jesus prevent or or preclude or forbid us from taking vows? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to what the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Oh, that it were so. Um, but my wife, I mean, my, my uh, mother turned gray when she was 25. And so every day after 25 that I haven't completely become gray is God's grace to me, I see. Um, but Jesus said, let, your, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. So it seems like Jesus is forbidding us from taking vows. But that's not what Jesus is doing at all. Rather, 
what he is doing is he is he is wanting us to refrain from from taking vows that we don't really mean or to or from making vows lightly that we haven't really considered. Jesus is really speaking against the practice of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had twisted this whole process of vow making. Uh, what they they loved to take vows because it showed how godly, how pious they were. Well, I vow by God's throne that I won't do this, or I vow by the city of Jerusalem that I will do this, and it looked really good, made it, and it sounded just fine. But they would always leave themselves an easy way out. Um, because they would say, and it's in their writings in the Talmud or, or other uh, Jewish writings, that you could swear by God's throne, but unless you swear by God himself, you can get out of a, a swear by the throne or a swear by Jerusalem. There was always an escape hatch. But if you swore by God, well, that was absolutely binding and you couldn't change that at all. And so, they, in effect, they could make these big boasts about their piety and godliness and leave themselves this escape clause. And so Jesus, here in Matthew 5, is condemning their hair-splitting legalism. Remember how he starts out the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so he is, he is, um, he is uh, hitting the scribes and the Pharisees in their legalism when he says this about vows. And in fact, if Jesus did indeed con- um, uh, condemned all forms of taking vows then we can be sure that the Apostle Paul, here in our text in Acts 18, would not be taking a vow. So, he's, um, Paul, we see, however, is making and keeping vows. Our confession of faith in reflecting the scriptural language makes a distinction between vows and oaths. And so if you look here on the front of your bulletin, you'll see that uh, 1, 3, and 4 talks about an oath. Whereas in 5 and 6, it's talking about vows. And it makes this distinctions because an oath concerns a person's duty to other people. Uh, so, for instance, we take an oath before we testify in court. But vows are made regarding a person's duty to God. And we are, we are to take neither lightly, whether they be oaths or vows. Because God is the witness to both, and He takes our oaths and our vows very seriously. So how does this apply to us? Well, I believe that we can use oaths and vows to help us grow in Christ. I believe Paul made a a vow to God to flee from the temptation to fear. And he used his uncut hair to remind him that he had taken a vow to God. You know, he lived another year and a half there in Corinth after God had spoke, after Jesus had spoken to him. So presumably, Paul did not cut his hair for a year and a half. And so he had reminders hanging down below his shoulders that, uh, that he was not to fear. That he could trust in his Lord Jesus even when uh, he was being opposed by people there in that town. 
Um, Job. Remember Job? He made a vow to help him to keep from lusting after women, after women. It says in the book of Job, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Uh, it's, it's, we can use vows that we make before God uh, to help us be more solemn in our obedience. It's not legalism, especially when we are relying on God and relying on His grace to help us be faithful to the vows that we have that we have made. So I've always had accountability partners to help me uh, be accountable in my walk with Christ. I'll give my vows to my accountability partner. And so then he will ask very pointed questions uh, regarding my faithfulness. You know, you wanted to read the Bible twice through this year? How are you doing on that? You wanted to have your personal worship uh, on a consistent basis, maybe five times a week. How are you doing on that? How are your prayer times? And it helps me to know that I'm going to be asked those questions to be more faithful to God. Um, I had a... uh, had a, a group of guys in South Carolina that we met every Thursday morning uh, at 5 a.m., 5 to 6.30 a.m. And the ground rules were we couldn't talk about our work or anything else. We could simply, and we couldn't talk about our family in a negative way. We simply talked about how are you treating your wife? How are, are you being faithful as a dad? Uh, are you praying for your wife and your children? We would ask these, each other these questions. And, and another ground rule was we could not be untruthful. And it helped me tremendously to love my wife, to be reminded that these guys were going to be asking me these questions. And I had to come up with an answer, especially if I happened to be uh, particularly selfish uh, that week. So these vows can help you. If you have areas of ongoing weakness, you can find a person to hold you accountable and encourage you in your faithfulness. If your marriage is in a rut, you can find another couple to uh, help you and your spouse practice healthy ways of relating to each other. This is the beauty of the gospel. Christ has died for all your sins. He has died for all your failures. In Him you are forgiven. But Christ has done more than that. He has given you His Holy Spirit. God Almighty lives inside you. And He's done even more than that. He's given you the body of Christ, the church, to encourage you and help you to faithfully obey Him. And so I think this is an application here on how we can can, uh, use vows even today in the church. The next item I want to look at is this whole issue raised in verse 20. The second half of verse 20, it says here, almost in passing, I'll just read the whole of verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, Paul declined. This verse actually made me upset. I was, I was angry because of this verse for at least two days at the beginning of this week. The Apostle Paul went on his missionary journey. This was his second missionary journey. And he went on both of them. Why? To persuade people that Jesus was the Messiah and that they must place their trust in Him. 
in order that they might be reconciled to God. In city after city, Paul would go and proclaim Jesus. And he would proclaim Jesus in the synagogues until the Jews got so angry with him that they chased him out, usually in a mob. In the town of Lystra, they got so angry with him, and they actually caught him before he was able to escape. They drug him outside the city and stoned him and left him for dead. But look what happened when he came to to Ephesus. He left Corinth, he cut his hair, he got on a ship and went to Ephesus. I'll, I'll start again, but I'm going to start with verse 19 to put it in the context. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they, being the Jews, when the Jews asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. The Jews wanted Paul to stay in in Ephesus and talk to them about Jesus rather than running him out of the city. Please stay and talk to us longer. And Paul said, no, I'm leaving. That angered me. Uh, It's almost like if my wife came up to me tomorrow night and said, honey, let's sit down and watch Monday night football together. And I I, I would be beside myself. Uh, I would ask, who are you and what have you done with my wife? It would be totally out of character for my wife to say that. To to watch a football game. uh, Even if it's with me. Um, And so it's totally out of character for Paul when the Jews have given him an open reception. Come and talk to us more. And it says he declined. Like I said, it kind of made me angry to see Paul do this. So the question is, why is Paul declining? To answer that question, I think we need to look at what he did instead of staying in Ephesus. It says he left Ephesus, verse 21, and he sailed to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the coast of Palestine, so Ephesus is over in Asia Minor. He sails across the um, northeastern part of the Mediterranean over to, to Palestine there with Caesarea. And then it says he went up and greeted the church. He actually went south but because uh, Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. It was at a higher elevation in their way of thinking. He went up because even though he's going south, he, he went up in in uh, in height. So he went up and greeted the church. Uh, and again, I think this the church he greeted was the church in Jerusalem. After leaving Jerusalem, then he traveled north to Antioch. But Antioch being at a lower elevation says it went, he went down to Antioch. So it gets a little confusing there. And this is Antioch in Syria, his home church. F.F. F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar and historian, uh, makes the compelling case that Paul was trying to reach Jerusalem before the Passover. And apparently with shipping routes and storms and, all, and stuff like that, um, he needed to leave... Um, pretty quickly to get to to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover and apparently Paul felt it was of great importance uh, for him to be in Jerusalem and to worship with the church there during the Passover. In fact, he was so important to him uh, that he was willing to leave behind a synagogue that was eager to hear about Christ. 
And of course, we find here that he left Aquila and Priscilla behind to minister in his absence. In other words, what I think is happening here, or or the application we can make, is that Paul organized his decision-making process around a set of principles that helped him to choose the activities that were the most important over the activities that were simply good. Uh, Paul knew that developing those vital relationships with the uh, with the apostles there in Jerusalem was cr- was crucial to the continued growth of the church in Asia Minor and in Europe. Um, and so it's not an accident that later we find Peter in Rome over in Europe. And we find um, Peter in Galatia. And we find other of the apostles at different places. Uh, why? Because Paul was developing that relationship and he was coming back and telling them about what God was doing in Asia Minor and, and Europe. Getting the, the apostles excited, excited about it so then they would... Um, would lend their support and leadership to these churches. See, Paul knew that he could not care for all these new churches that he had started in Asia Minor and in Europe all by himself. And so he's enlisting the support of the apostles. And I think this points us to the whole issue of prioritizing in the Christian life. Um, Paul spoke in his letter, um, in, in some of his letters, of the need for Christians to prioritize their activities because the days were short or the days were evil. Uh, he says they needed to prioritize if they were going to be effective in their walk with Christ and in their witness for Him in the world. So in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18, Paul said, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Opportunity. In other words, prioritizing what is best, even over what is good. He goes on, but he says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In this passage in Ephesians 5, Paul is pleading with the believers to bring their time and all aspects of their life in line with uh, the control of the Holy Spirit. He's saying if we're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, then there's something else controlling us. He uses the example of wine. Do not be filled with wine, because that will control you, and it will lead you to debauchery. Uh, He says, rather be filled with the Spirit. Um, But we could use any number of examples instead of wine that end up controlling us, that end up uh, putting our priorities all out of whack um, and keeping us from being effective in our walk with Christ and in our, um, in our witness for Him. You know, television is one of those things that can really just bring our lives and our walk with Christ all out of whack. Um, hobbies, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of uh, fun, you know, all these things can uh, bring everything, just put everything out of order. Even some things that are not ex- ex- really frivolous or bad can, can uh, when put in the wrong order of priorities, can uh, really hinder our walk with Christ. Prioritizing work over God. Even prioritizing family or friendships over God can um, 
can put your, your priorities in, in the wrong order. And we do live busy lives here in this century. And it's important that we prioritize, prioritize our lives with Christ and His kingdom at the very top. How does it say in Matthew 6? Seek first Christ and His kingdom. And then He will give you everything else you need here in this life. We're not allowed to skip over any of God's priorities for our lives. Uh, Certainly we are not allowed to put our own priorities above God's. And so Paul here, in this passage, is prioritizing uh, what is best. And he left behind this synagogue uh, full of eager Jews in order that he could go and do what he felt was best. I, I could say a lot more about prioritizing, but we have communion this morning. So this is going to be my final application. And that is this whole issue of vows and oaths and priorities all point us to the need to be God-centered in our lives. We need to have a God-centered approach to our lives. You might be called to live a very different life than Paul. You might not be called to be a missionary and go on these missionary journeys. Uh, But you are just as responsible for living a God-centered life, a God-obeying life, a God-prioritized life. And God has given you, according to the book of of, uh, 2 Peter, everything you need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Savior. So as we approach the communion table this morning, I want to encourage you to ask in your heart before the Lord what areas need to be reordered in order to bring your life into line with God's priorities for your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we do ask that your spirit would now move as we approach this time of communion with our Lord Jesus Christ and with each other. And I pray that he would be active and at work in our hearts, helping us to ask these questions um, of ourselves, that we might live more God-centered and... um, Christ-honoring and um, witness, uh, witnessing effective lives for you and your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning.